0: Welcome to Onscript's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at Onscript.study/slash biblical world.
1: Hey, everyone, welcome back to Onscript's Biblical World podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. In this episode, you're going to hear from Erez Ben Yosef about nomadism and the archaeological- architectural bias in archaeology and archeology Uh, his work in that area so hope you enjoy this episode and as always if you get the chance to give us a rating or review on itunes or apple podcasts i don't know if they're both firing right now both operative um or wherever you listen to this we would greatly appreciate that especially as a newer podcast it helps get the word out there and as always, we also welcome your feedback. So if you want to email us at onscriptpodcast at gmail.com, you can send your ideas or requests there. I think we're um, one of the things we're aware of is that we want to do more in the historical context of the New Testament. We're gonna be having some episodes on that shortly, uh, but we'd like to grow and develop in how we do this, so we welcome your input. Okay, enjoy the episode.
0: Well, welcome back, OnScript Biblical World listeners. Today we have an exciting conversation with Professor Erez Ben Yosef of the Tel Aviv University. Uh, In case you're just joining us for the first time, I'm Kyle Keimer. I'm joined with my joined by my co-host Chris McKinney, and we're going to be really grilling Erez today, uh, and hopefully in a very a a good way. But he's been uh, at the the heart of a lot of new and recent, really interesting research coming out of the southern part of Israel that delves into the the nature of nomadic life, the relationship between nomads and settled, and how we even interpret the the archaeology of uh, the Iron Age in Israel. And so these and, and other topics we're going to delve in. We'll talk a little bit also about his work at the the mines of Tibna. Maybe we'll talk about Solomon's mines as well, too, and this whole... Uh, kind of romantic idea of of this concept, and so it 's going to be a, a fun filled episode today and with that Ares, I want to thank you for being here and uh, chris i don 't know if you want to kick us off with uh, with anything otherwise i 'll jump in and and start saying something
2: yeah uh, Ares, I think thanks for coming on i i 've enjoyed your your work and benefited from your work uh, for a long time now in um, and I think we share a lot of the same, all three of us share a lot of the same uh, interests in terms of the archaeology of the early Iron Age and trying to deal with geopolitics and geography. And and uh, it's just been wonderful to to see your work at, at Timna and Kiribati Nahas and uh, the, all the new developments in the last, I would say, what, 15 years or so that have really revolutionized Uh, our understanding of Iron Age metallurgy, which is Iron Age economy. And even in the last two or three years, uh, you've made a a number of of very compelling points about um, this so-called architectural bias in biblical archaeology that um, myself have been really uh, intrigued by, and I know Kyle has as well, and um, that that I think are, are very important. And we're just really happy to have you on today um, and, and to, to inform us further about, you know, these different things and inform our audience. So thanks for coming on. And uh, maybe you could just give us a, um, you know, kind of an overview of your uh, of your background um, as a as a scholar um, who studied in, um, you know, in Israel, but also in the States. And then also kind of some of your major projects that you've been associated with.
3: OK, Kyle and Chris, thanks for inviting me. Um, for this podcast, and I am, uh, you know, my career started at the Hebrew University, so, you know, the Hebrew University is uh, my original home, and I studied uh, geology and archaeology for, uh, you know, for my bachelor degrees, so this, you know, connects us to the minds that we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, and for my PhD, I moved to California. I did my PhD with Professor Tom Levy at UCSD, and this, is, this was actually a fascinating experience because I was uh, able to go and excavate in Jordan. This, is, uh, this was my first excavations in the copper mines of the Araba, together with the American expedition to Fainan, Wadi Fainan. Um Then I did a postdoc also in the States uh, with a focus on metallurgical remains in Cyprus, actually another very important copper producer in antiquity, but also during the Bronze and Iron Ages. And then I got uh, the job here at Tel Aviv University as part of a program on uh, archaeomaterials and archaeological science. And most of my research is actually focused on technological uh, development, society and technology, uh, archaeometallurgy, metallurgical technologies, and things related to this aspect of the uh, ancient societies Um, actually from the Calicolytic all the way to uh, more recent periods. just happened to be that I've been working on the Iron Age for many years now, and uh, with a lot of new discoveries that, of course, inform us about the history of the period, and not only about the history of the period, but also about methodological questions related to how we make history out of the remains.
0: Great errors I, th- I think this is really important, I think, for some of our listeners to li- to hear as well because you're you didn 't come in as a, a biblical scholar, and this you know, what, however you want to view it as a positive or, or negative thing, depending on some people. but we have biblical scholars that are listening, and I think particularly when we delve into some of these topics that your research is focused on it 's a really significant thing that you don 't have an axe to grind, and so so many times within even within archaeology, but within biblical studies as well, particularly in this early iron age period, people want to say, "Okay, how does this relate to the bible and of course, you're in the 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 most interesting slash controversial period when this is the the so called united monarchy, the early monarchy of israel, and so how does this relate? How does everything come together? And like you said, you you are interested in bringing about not only the the science, incorporating that in, but then also raising methodological questions that are causing us to think how we're interpreting the archaeology, how we've been reconstructing the bigger picture. And so I just want to make that really explicit for our audience because I think it's a really great window that even though we have these narratives out there and we can debate certain points, it's always helpful to uh, weigh the new evidence so it 's always helpful to revisit those narratives and to consider well, maybe they need to be changed maybe there's new evidence that is causing us to rethink what we've what we've kind of known, and a lot of your research is really doing this not not that you plan to go out and and do this, but it 's just how it's come about and so I just wanted to make that really explicit for some of our our listeners out there that this is you know also part of uh you know i guess the bigger the bigger issue the bigger question
2: i yeah, i would just I would just jump in here real quickly and say you have you know the irony pun intended uh that you started out as you know studying iron age and you found this major copper industry right you know that that's you know associated with bronze and uh it's just a it's just a fascinating thing that these you know this question of of metallurgy and how it's involved with economy and uh so maybe maybe you could uh give us a little bit more insight into Maybe how the um, how the picture was when uh, you and Tom Levy, Tom, because with T- Tom Levy at Nahas or, or the Feinon Project, I mean, I, I was a I was a grad student in uh, when I heard Tom Levy at the Hebrew Union College in Jerusalem. Uh, I walked over there, and it was you know I think 2008 or so, and I just remember being like blown away by this information, and 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 since then it's it's really. Uh, continued to um, to dominate uh, the discussion of Iron Age uh, politics. So, if you could give us kind of like broad strokes view of of, of what that is, and, and kind of what your um, what this new stuff that you've discovered and Tom Levy's um, excavations have also really kind of changed the picture.
3: Yeah. So, um, actually, the, the what happened in the last twenty years is amazing, and it's actually. Uh, The main reason why I have all of these methodological uh, thoughts about what's going on with archaeology and uh, trying to understand this very interesting period, because when I started working in the South, uh, together with Tom and even before that, uh, the big mines in Jordan, in the Wadi Fainan area, and in Timna were considered to be an imperial activity there was kind of a consensus among archaeologists and historians that only an empire can uh, be behind these amazing uh, uh, remains uh, that we know about actually more than 200 years. The the mines, the big piles of slag, the waste of furnaces, we know about them for quite a long time now. But uh, not so long ago, 15, 17 years ago, everybody thought that these are, uh, related to the big empires. In Timna, it was the new kingdom of Egypt that was uh, there uh, around the 13th, early 12th centuries BCE. And in Fenan it was considered to be an Assyrian related project uh, in the late Iron Age, in the seventh century uh, BCE. And this was kind of the, the, the picture when we started working there. Uh, and then when the results came first from Wadi Fenan and then from Timna, it completely changed uh, the way we think about uh, uh, the region and what was happening there, because most of these activities are not related to any empire. And it's exactly dated to the period of what we can say, like the dark ages of the Southern Levant uh, to the 11th, 10th, 9th centuries BC, a period with not much writing and, you know, this is, this is the debated period. This is exactly the time of the United Monarchy in Jerusalem. Uh, in the South, uh, we believe the evidence are related to the Kingdom of Edom. Uh, but we have no empires in the background. All of this remains, and even more evidence for complex society, for a complex political organization that came since the excavation started about 20 years ago, Uh, All of that cannot be attributed to any uh, uh, regional uh, uh, or supra-regional power. And we now know that this is a a local enterprise of the local tribes. That, for our discussion today, it's also important to say that they were still nomadic. They were nomadic people that were able to organize this uh, industry and to have a stable a connection to take care of the stability of the region and a very thriving uh, trade relationships with all of the neighboring kingdoms and beyond. So this is uh, actually the main change in our understanding of this mindset in the South. And uh, this is part of what we uh, continue to explore every year when we go to Timna, we try to understand better who were these people and uh, uh how they are related to other places around them. Uh, so we can talk about that as well.
0: Yeah, and this is I just want to raise one point because so much of what you've been able to recover, archaeologically speaking, is you know, for some of our listeners, just to paint the context again of the bigger you know, the climate of Israel. And so oftentimes we see these sensational finds in the history of archaeology, you know, King Tut's tomb or this or that, or the Oxyrhynchus papyri you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, why why don't we find more of these kind of things in other places in Israel? Well, number one, I mean, these are rare, very rare things. We're often generally interested in the far more mundane aspects that tell us a whole lot more information. But you know, the northern part of Israel is very well watered, actually. So the, the climate, the soil just doesn't preserve certain types of organic materials. And so they're just not going to be there. But you're working in a region where a lot of these things can actually be preserved and so it's opening up a whole another level it's not that these things didn't exist it's just that they haven't been preserved in many climates or many regions of not only Israel but elsewhere throughout the world and so you're you're you have a very rare glimpse i think and that's why some of what you're doing is so interesting is because the preservation is so good that it's allowing you to ask these bigger questions and to come back and say okay now we're we're getting a, a larger Picture, So to speak, a larger view, and we can ask different kinds of questions. And so all this to say, you know, some of your work at Timna, maybe you could just even highlight some of the, in many regards, mundane things that people wouldn't find particularly interesting, but which are extremely important for understanding the uh, long distance trade or local economy. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about you know, the work at Slaves Hill or even some of the other excavation areas you've had there in, in
3: Timna in particular. Timna uh, is, is interesting because in addition to the mines and the furnaces and the slag like we have in Jordan, uh, the, condi- the, the, the climate conditions there are uh, extremely dry even for the deserts of the southern levant and the negev and the jordanian southern plateau it is really very very dry and this allowed the preservation of organic remains that we don't find anywhere else not in Finan, not in the negev highlands of course not in the mediterranean regions of the you know jerusalem and these areas and this is a, this this is, gives us a whole new You know, a window into uh, aspects of life that we usually cannot study uh, because we have all these organic remains, including leather, ropes, uh, and textile. We have a fantastic textile collection from the the time of David and Solomon. So it doesn't matter if you believe in these kings um, or not. The fashion of people, including elite in this period of the history of the land, the only place you can have a glimpse into this, uh, into the world, world is in Timna. And this is what we are doing, actually. We are studying mm-hmm. these uh, remains uh, with uh, experts on ancient textiles, with Dr. Orit Shamir and Dr. Nama and uh, Vanessa Workman. There is a team of experts working on these remains. Uh, and uh, we are uh, looking at the type of materials that, were, that, that uh, they were using which are wool, goat hair, and linen. And also we're looking at the dyed stuff, the colors. And one of our recent discoveries was about uh, the purple dye. We found a few fragments of textiles dyed with the true purple, which is uh, the royal purple that was made from sea snails, which are um, endemic to the Mediterranean Sea. So... It had to, to to come all the way to Timna from uh, a, a, be, a very long distance. It, it, it's probably related to the Phoenician coast area where this industry is uh, known to us, especially from a bit later periods. These shreds, these textiles, are dated to the late 11th, 10th century species. So they are quite early and uh, we don't have anything like that in the entire archaeology of the land of Israel. And purple was the color of uh, of, of kings, of priests. It was used in the tabernacle. It, it is a very prestigious color, which, again, we have uh, physical evidence of it from a very early times. And if you go back to the what we mentioned before about the nomads, and you ask yourself, what will be a, a nomadic king? How he will manifest his power? Uh, so it won't be with a stone palace. It won't be with a big wall or a stone monument. It will be with like that—a very a fancy tent and this kind of uh, of, of uh, garments that were dyed with the most expensive dye at the time. Uh, and we have actually physical evidence for that, which also indicates that the society was stratified, that we had elite there. And if you think about the fact that it was, you know, uh, people agreed that, uh, the scholars agreed that this was part of the Egyptian empire, uh, all of these activities until not so long ago, it it does not surprise us that this early Edomites uh, had something like an early kingdom with elite, with a ruler, probably a king uh, respo- that, that was responsible for all of this big operation at, at, at the region. Uh, we see evidence for coordination between Team Nine and Fennan. It was not some tribes in the south and some tribes in the north. It was something that was actually orchestrated uh, from a central location. Uh, and uh, we have more and more evidence for that. Uh, so what we have here actually, is something that we can call a nomadic kingdom. And this is actually quite new in the uh, archeological discussion, and the historical discussion, because for for biblical scholars and archeologists alike, nomads cannot create a significant uh, kingdom or a significant political organization. Nomads are uh, always uh, in the lowest tier of social evolution in the region. So to think about nomads and and a kingdom was kind of a contradiction. Uh, and, And this is really very important for the research of the period because there is a kind of almost a consensus, except for a few scholars, everybody agrees that the origin of the ancient Israelites, the ancient Ammonites, the ancient Moabites, and the Edomites was nomadic. So the tribes of Israel, nomadic. There are some arguments if there were local nomads or the nomads that, that came from the east, but most scholars agree that this big story started with nomads. The main thing that I think we missed was what these nomads were capable of in terms of a social organization of political structure, even before complete sedentarization, even before the entire tribes settled down and built towns and cities and walls. And what we have in the Arapah is a, an amazing example that tells us that we were a bit, you know, we missed the, the, this possibility that nomads could have created kingdoms. Uh, and, and I think this is a big deal for the discussion about the history of the period, even beyond the local story of the Edomites there at the south.
0: Yeah, this is, a, I mean, you're so right, Erez and I think it's really calling into question this narrative, which, again, one of the, the focus of this podcast is also the historical geography, even kind of the history of the field, and it's something that Chris and I are particularly interested in, and this whole narrative of... the the abilities or the nature or the structure of kind of nomadic life is equated to Bedouin life, and this comes from the early European explorations of the Middle East following Napoleon's campaign, the opening up of the Middle East to European explorers, American explorers, and they came and there was there I mean there really was this negative view of of the Bedouin of the the fellahin of of these nomadic individuals that they just you know were incapable of you know, higher level social structure or this or that or the other thing and this became just part of the accepted narrative and, and so the biblical texts were then read through that and now you're coming back and saying hold on a second this is it's not just a, a catch-all thing I mean we clearly people knew about you know Mongolian empire and other nomadic empires already in history but it, it just didn't fit the narrative that was being kind of espoused by these European and American explorers in the day and so it's so Again, refreshing to come back and revisit some of the assumed things that we thought are just yeah that's just what it is. But we have to question everything.
2: Yeah, and I, just to add some things for myself, um, looking back to even you know grad school, undergrad, and, and thinking about on the more conservative side of this of this discussion, um, and being exposed to that throughout throughout my entire life as a as a as a student, um, you've 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 revolutionized a lot of this discussion because even that whole thing of, is the Bible historical or not, is predicated upon, are there archaeological remains at this particular site? Are there archaeological remains at what, you know, you throw it out, Jericho, Hatsor, I, um, archaeology in the Beersheva Valley, you know, and, and making a connection between sherds and architecture and, and people. You know, it's, we, we talk a lot on this podcast about do pots equal people, in terms of ethnicity, but pots and, and walls have often equaled historicity or not historicity throughout the archaeological discussion. And I would say that there, there has been people that have tried to push back against this, not necessarily using the same arguments that Erez uh, that has, uh, but they've said, you know, should we change the whole archaeological, um, you know, sequence to make it fit, and we have all these kind of outlandish ideas. But really, the answer um, is it was really kind of staring us right in the face, and that is just the nature of preservation. How do we how do we know about trade? How do we know about um, you know how people actually lived? And one of the things I'm just so struck by is if we if we think about the um, the, the major trade that preceded this uh, early Iron Age stuff. So when we think about the late Bronze Age. We have physical remains that, that come. We see you know, Cypriot vessels and Mycenaean vessels and, and all this stuff that's part of this large um, international trade. But once that collapses, what are you going to find? You're not going to find these, these, these aspects of trade. And so it's only in these places where, by the nature of the level of preservation, eras and others have been able to, to locate these, um, you know, these, these these textiles and these other things that are just related to that. And one last thing before I hand it back to you, um, one of the things that you mentioned I'd never thought of before um, th- that's really interesting is, is you have this narrative in Judges chapter 8 um, where Gideon runs down the Midianites, and he specifically talks about how he takes away their garments and their, especially their jewelry. And this is well, again, whether Judges 6 through 8 is a historical narrative or not, it's reflective of what these symbols are in a nomadic society and how these chieftains and the tribes that are around them would have projected their power and strength. And, and, and you have this exactly reflected in what you see at uh, at Timna, as you were uh, as you were indicating, and so um, it's fascinating, fascinating uh, stuff. And I would just say it's really you know more about this period of Phoenician textiles now from the Arava than you do necessarily from Lebanon, uh, which is a, it's really insane. I mean that's the nature of surprising things in archaeology.
3: Yeah, uh, Chris, you mentioned Gideon and the Midianites, and some of the spoil was jewelry, but he also took purple garments that the kings of Midian wore, and we have, from this exact period, physical evidence of purple garments from a nomadic society that was like neighboring the Midianites. Uh, According to the uh, Hebrew Bible, the Midianites were somewhere in this region, Uh, so this is quite uh, amazing. and. I, I will go back to the point about the Bedouins. Um, so it makes sense that uh, the Bedouins were the role models for nomads of the biblical period for biblical scholars and archaeologists, because these are the nomads of the region today. So if there is no archaeological evidence of nomads, and it's very, very difficult to find remains of tents, and uh, you know they, to, to, to really accurately date the, these remains, even if you find them, it's almost impossible. And of course to say something about their society, it's literally impossible. So we need some ethnographic example to go with. and uh, the, 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 maybe you know uh, the best example was the nomads of the region uh, in the modern times. And of course this imposed a specific interpretation on the nomads of the biblical times. Because imagine a biblical scholar in the 18th or 19th century, he uh, or she was hearing about the Bedouins uh, of the region from explorers, from adventurers, going to this uh, uh, dangerous place with no law, with uh, you, need to, you needed to pay back shish in order to go safely to the Dead Sea. So it's something that is very exotic on the one hand, this exotic uh, uh, Oriental Bedouin. Uh, But on the other hand, it's a very specific interpretation of a simple society that was on the fringe of the Ottoman Empire before what it meant. So of course it couldn't mean, it was was a contradiction to think about uh, nomads and a kingdom. And, my, my, my point here is not that nomads in the southern Levant created kingdoms every uh, year and there. It's not the point at all, but uh, that the Iron Age was an exceptional period that allowed for something that is different from the Bedouin model that everybody uses. And everybody uses this Bedouin model without really thinking about it. It's kind of it's part of the discussion, even if not explicitly. People call the nomads of the period Bedouins, just you know, as, a, as, a, as, a, as another name for these nomads, when the reality could have been completely different from the Bedouin story. So, but so it's very much entrenched into the in the discussion on the history of the period, uh, and we might learn something from the Bedouin ethnography. Uh, for the long durée, for like what's going on with nomads of the region for many periods, for many years. Uh, But if we stuck with this Bedouin model, we will miss exceptions. Mm -hmm. And what we see in this particular period uh, is an exception, at least in the south, in the case of the Edomites that created a, a nomadic kingdom. And I would say even more that I think in the whole history of the of the land, this exceptional period is most suitable for this kind of social organization of nomadic tribes creating a, a, a complex political organization because it's just after the collapse of the Bronze Age civilizations. Probably uh, you discussed this major event in other episodes. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, at the end of the Bronze Age there is the, a big crisis. Uh, Egypt, that was a major power in the region, stabilized, coming to protect the city states every time there was kind of a, an issue with these nomads or appeal or this kind of people that uh, unruly people. Egypt disappeared, disappeared from the region because of its own uh, uh, issues. And, and this was exactly the period in which we uh, expect these tribes to get together, to get coalitions and to uh, establish a complex political organizations. So this is one thing. And, and, and I would say something. In addition, it's not only the Bedouin model that uh, got uh, us so much focused on architecture and the settlements and the size of the settlements and the cities, what I call the architectural bias. It's not only because Uh, we adhere to the Bedouin model, it's also because us as archaeologists, it's very um, hard for us to admit that we don't see a substantial part of the historical picture. It's very, you know, it's natural. And if if your profession is to find the remains and reconstruct history out of the remains, it's very hard to admit that uh, a substantial part of the history we cannot see and we cannot say what was uh, a that period uh, or a that period, uh, of course, uh, uh, against the biblical descriptions. So it it really took, even for me, I came with the regular understanding of uh, biblical archaeology interpretation of how we do, uh, how we reconstruct the history of the time. Uh, and just by chance, just because these early idomines engaged in the highly visible uh, copper production, we saw a completely different picture. Uh, just because we have the mines, the thousands of mines and the furnaces and the slag heaps, and inside the slag heaps, all of these organic remains that we mentioned, or, only because we have this evidence, And it's only by chance we know that this Bedouin model is not the entire picture. Uh, And really, this is actually when I I realized, I I said, you know, why if these nomads, these tribes in the south, uh, had a kingdom, but their economy was based on on trade. The Arabian trade was already uh, in the going, very early. We have no evidence for that as well. So what if they were not doing any copper? Uh, so archaeologists would say, idea that there was an occupational gap, nobody was there, and this has uh, major implications. Of course, people would uh, scholars were using this until uh, the redating of the mines to say that the description of, of King David going to the south uh, and, and subjugating the Edomites had to be uh, has to be anachronistic because there were no people there. So who did he conquer? That doesn't make any sense. So it had to be anachronistic, but now we know not only that people were there, but they also controlled the most important industry of the time. So if they they did not engage in the production of copper, they live and still they were living in tents, the archeological profession couldn't tell the, the story of the nomadic kingdom, just, we cannot do that. Uh, and this is, a, this is a very important methodological insight, which we should take, I think, also to the neighboring uh, polities, ancient Israel, of course, but also to uh, early Moab, with, with all of the debates about this early kingdom and the Ammonites. Uh, and, and, and this is a major lesson from the archaeology of the South that uh, I think is very uh, telling.
2: Okay. I'd like to just add, poor Kyle jumps said, I would just want to say that I really appreciate your your points here. And I remember going back to the Albright in maybe like 2011 or 2012, you gave a a paper there, and in just hit the really beginning of the onset of this it's so refreshing and interesting to see even your evolution as how these new discoveries have been made. And, and I remember uh, we were, you know, Ami was in the audience, Ami Mazar was in the audience and, and you were, you were saying something along the lines of this is really fantastic new discovery about early iron age. And Ami uh, made the point, he, he says something like, is there a reason why you don't call them Edomites? And you're like, you know, we probably should. And, and, and so just the, if we think about where the field has been in since like the mid nineties with, with all of the discussion at Tel Aviv and Hebrew university and all this, it's just so interesting to see how, um, how the field has changed, but, but also how you've allowed the evidence to really shape your, uh, your view, not, and not, and not your presuppositions either towards the Bible or towards archeology. span And so I would just say that I'm, I'm really thankful for your, your approach to it and you're to be greatly commended for, uh, for that. And, uh, the other thing I would say just for our, uh, for our audience when we talk about uh, Bedouin, um, one of the things we can really see some connections with in, like, the biblical text is things like hospitality and and living conditions within a. T- I mean, there's people have made connections for many, many years uh, for a, a text like Genesis 18, where you have Abraham greeting the men and this hospitality and the, and the the giving of water and the caring for the needs and you know killing the fatted calf literally um, and and these types of things. Are, are still uh, connections that I think are legitimate. The question isn't those those types of things in terms of culture, but really in terms of the political dynamic um, that, that Eras uh, has demonstrated um, that, that really fit in this Iron Age period because before, we have the strong power of New Kingdom Egypt up until about 1150 BC, 1200 BC, at different parts. And then right around 700 BC, you have the force of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and even as early as the late 8th century, starting to come into contact with the the tribes of Arabia, even Ishmaelite tribes mentioned in Genesis. And so it's in that window of, you know, 400, 500 years, which is precisely the window that we have the story of ancient Israel and Judah and the Philistines and the Moabites as them emerging. And so uh, this is, again, just a, Kyle mentioned before that, you know, this isn't the Dead Sea Scrolls or some of these others, but in terms of a methodological shift, it's as significant a discovery um, for the Iron Age Uh, as we can really have to to really change the the nature of the field and so uh very uh very interesting Kyle do you have you have some comments
0: yeah no I was just going to go on that I think yeah I, I agree I mean I think Ares's points are so important and I think you 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 added and summarized great Chris and for the longest time, I mean, essentially since the field has been a field of kind of biblical archaeology or the archaeology of you know, the Southern Levant, whatever you want to call it, it has, the narrative has been dominated by the political discourse. What, what was happening politically? This is how we organize, this is how we frame things. And it's not to say that that was wrong, the scholars... From the earliest dimes, we're working with text, they're working with available resources. It was you know, trying to understand what's going on and this is where they began. And you could do the most that you could do from a political perspective. But now we've gotten to a point where the archaeology is allowing us to ask new questions. It's allowing us to look at the, the the big narrative from a different perspective, from a sociological perspective, say. And so the whole idea of, well, do bigger cities mean more important sites? Well, that's not necessarily the way they structured or thought, you know. The, bigger cities might mean, you know, we need to think about it sociologically. That means that there's more clans or there's more tribes or there's more, you know, lineages associated there. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that they're this massive, you know, political entity it just means that sociologically they might be structured differently than say a smaller site or a village or this or that or the other but if we didn't have the the archaeological evidence to even get us thinking and shift some of this you know we'd still be i think stuck to a certain degree in the political discourse of 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 these things and i think we're going to see a big change and i think eras has been leading some of this i think there have been some other studies that have been contributing to this that we're going to see a big change in the way the narrative is is told for the ancient Near East, in the way that we understand even the history of the Bible. And I think it's a you know, whether or not it's you know right or wrong, it's just different from the other one. But it allows us to look at things a different way, to ask different questions. And of course the goal is always to come back and understand things as 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 well as we can. Not to say that we're ever going to have that perfectly, but the more we can piece together, the more we can say about these ancient societies and you know, Eras. I think you know some of your your points in particular about the the nature of you know what what is a a king and e- what does an Edomite king look like? Well, he's not building a giant palace, probably. Maybe he he has the one purple. You know cloak, maybe he has three rings, and nobody else has golden rings. Maybe he has enough sway amongst his people that he can tell four or five people to go dig in the holes and find copper and smelt it and do whatever he asks them I mean, and this makes him a king for all intents and purposes. It's not some European model that we have to be beholden to that says, you know, a king has a palace, he wears a fancy white wig, he does this or that or the other thing, right. So all these, I, I, again, the methodological points, I think this is such a, a significant thing that that you're really articulating. And, and and for some people, I think, forcing them to engage with, which is necessary. Other people, I think it's a welcome uh, breath of fresh air.
2: So, Ares, er, one one question for you, uh, and feel free to comment on any of this, but, uh, you know, you've, you've made the comments about David and Solomon possibly having connections with this, and maybe you can add a little bit further on that. Um, but... You know, as we all know, there's there's issues with the biblical text and how we interpret it. And it's written, some of it's written, written later and the reflections of earlier things. But something like the Shishak city list from Karnak um, is tended to be thought as reflecting of this time period. It's normally dated to the last quarter of the 10th century, traditionally 925 BC or so. Um, what is your current view of how that relates to the copper industry, and the Arava. Um, and again, we're talking about Phanon, which, by the way, is probably biblical punon if you're thinking of the Copper Serpent episode, and, and Temna, um, and how that relates to kind of this overall historical picture, because you also have the so-called Negev fortresses, and there's 60 or so of these that date to that same time period. And there's all these weird names we always hear, the Telmasos chiefdom and, and all these things. I would just be really... Uh, curious to to give us your your current take on the political dynamics involved with uh, the the 10th century especially
3: well you raised many points it will take us i think a seminar of a whole week
0: <laughs> but we're asking you to do it in about five minutes so well, you, it's a pretty I, easy you, but request. you're
2: the you're the man <laughs> we have you now
3: uh, yeah I will just say I was saying that really the the important thing to say is that the biblical story is a story of nomads it's all over the place you read about living uh, people dwelling in tents one of the tribes one of these israeli tribes like a small clan so people uh, the the, the nomadic part of of the bible is is huge so we really have to think about this carefully and uh, as kyle said Really, this is an exceptional period after the collapse of the empires, that no man's tribes could have created something that is far different from the Bedouin that of today. I will add to that, that currently the reason for this collapse or change in the ancient Near East in the, late, in the end of the Bronze Age, is yeah, most scholars agree that it is related to climate, to a worsening climate conditions, to a series of droughts, to desertification, and nomads, people that can move when the well is dry, have, uh, have an advantage over the settled uh, in this kind of, uh, of changing climate. And this is another reason why we need to think about this period as exceptional in regard to nomads and their ability to create powers, uh, to, to, to establish, uh, to accumulate power. This is true for the Edomites, but it is also true for the ancient Israelites at uh, that exactly uh, period. Also, we have to uh, add to this uh, story is what Kyle was publishing recently, quite a lot about uh, also methodological issues and what scholars and people at home that read the Bible or think about the period have in mind when they think about the United Monarchy. So, in in it, it just in some in in a way. Uh, They actually exaggerate uh, even more than the biblical description itself. Mm -hmm. They they consider it to be kind of some kind of a a huge empire like, uh, I don't know, Egypt or or Assyria, which is not the case if you read the biblical text itself. So, uh, if you add to that uh, the the story of nomads and the possibility that nomads continue to be part of the Israelite society. Well into uh, the Iron Age, into the 10th century, and even uh, the 9th, uh, you, you imagine something completely different, an, an empire that some people have in mind, and when we don't find it, we are disappointed, or we even worse, we claim that this was not a part of the history of the region, the, the biblical description itself. And in, in addition to that, uh, when scholars and even lay people or, you know, When we talk about nomads among friends, okay, usually the image is of lowly people. You know, people can like uh, Bedouins, and they can find it very exotic. But nevertheless, the common perception of nomads is like lowly people that in the minute they will have the opportunity to get into a stone house, they will do it. (laughs) and and, and people cannot understand the concept of a a culture a culture of nomads that won't move into a stone-built house in the minute they get into a city it's something that even today scholars and you know people that i talk to cannot understand that it's in a cultural thing and this is also important because if we accept that the israelites had a nomadic origin It it didn't happen within a generation, the transition into a settled society. We are talking about many generations. This is how it works. Even today, when a a, a state like Israel, the modern state of Israel, tries to build houses and to put the Bedouins into settlements, it doesn't happen easily. There is a lot of issues about that. And we really need to to think about it as a cultural thing. That uh, uh, continued uh, lasted a long time, and uh, also it uh, was a major part of the history of the period deep into the Iron Age. Mm-hmm. So this is about uh, the big questions related to nomads, and you mentioned the uh, uh, the affiliation of this nomadic kingdom with Edo. So I trying to avoid you know i still i teach here at tel aviv university i don't think that my approach is not critical i call it the (laughs) ultra critical approach and my criticism is actually towards the archaeological uh, methodology in a way only in things related to nomads but the affiliation of these nomads with edom is based not on the bible though i would say right away that the archaeology now gives a perfect background to the biblical narratives of David's conquests in the south and, uh, and the subjugation of the Edomites and Solomon's uh, port in Elat, just, you know, next to Timna. This is Elat it's 20 kilo, 25 kilometers south of Timna. And, and Solomon builds a port in its young gaber in the land of Edom. It says explicitly that this region is Edom in the book of Kings. So we find this also the excavators of Finan to be part of the Edomite kingdom based on non-biblical descriptions. And it's very easy to understand. We have references to this region, or some parts of this region is Edom, as early as the 13th century BCE. Uh, you know, the name was there. And we have a, 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 an explicit description of a kingdom called Edom uh, in Assyria by Adad-Lirari III, late 9th century early 8th century, around 800 BCE. Incidentally, we still don't have settlements there. So some scholars had very hard time with that. And even, you know, they, they, some some of them suggested maybe he refers to a 10th dwelling kingdom, but it's like a kind of almost a footnote because it didn't make sense. But dad nirari III, 800 BCE, Edomite kingdom, uh, and uh, the, the major thing that happened there in the ninth century was the copper production that was organized by a major uh, supra-regional kind of uh, uh, entity. We, we find the affiliation of these archaeological remains. It undermines the simplest explanation, the simplest interpretation. If we call them the desert polity, the desert people, we want to, 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 to you know, uh, maybe to. Uh, have like the air of being neutral, not uh, biblical related, it makes complications. It produces complications in the explanation of where these Edomites came from immediately, suddenly, how did they replace the people before that? This is the uh, things that uh, we are, uh, we have to ask ourselves. So really the, the calling them Edomites will be the simplest uh, possibility, I, I would argue, that it, it's even simpler that, than the identification of these iron one sites at the hill countries, Israelites, because there we don't have any texts whatsoever. Now, Neftach doesn't say where this Israel is located, and we don't have anything until much later. So the, the Edomite uh, uh, identification is, I think, easy to, uh, to understand, and it's actually the best way to go.
0: Can I just add one one thing that goes along with that as well? Is there's all, this also passage in Genesis, the so-called Edomite king list, and one of the interesting things is that even though you have kind of father to son succession, they're located in different locations, and so it's not like they have a centralized capital city. They they they're all over, and so it
3: fits perfectly to exactly. the description yeah. to the description of a nomadic kingdom because they they move their center moves, and also I would say you both are dealing with historical geography a lot. And, uh, and, and another, another thing here is that for us, modern scholars, especially those who read Hebrew, like it's actually more tricky to uh, Israeli scholars who speak modern Hebrew, and then they read the text and they think they understand everything. So when they <laughs> see the word here, uh, here, like Ein Yudosh, yeah. here, <laughs> it translates to city in English, and it's what Israelis have in mind. So I am, uh, you know, I have uh, colleagues that are uh, biblical scholars, that's what they do, uh, looking at the language, looking at, uh, you know, the, the text. And of course, we sat together and we, uh, I've, I've asked, you know, what is the meaning of ear in ancient Hebrew, in biblical Hebrew, and could it have changed through time? And of course, Ir can be also just a general reference to an encampment, to an ephemeral place. You know, there is Ir Amalek. It's like Mm -hmm. the center of the Amalek, which were nomadic people somewhere in the south. So when we read about the Ir, uh, the the, the Arim, the cities of the Edomites, people were looking for the cities with walls and and towers, etc. And there was nothing there from the period that text ostensibly is referring to. So they said, you know, it had to be from the Persian period. I don't know. But, you know, there are so many nuances when you do biblical scholarship and when you do biblical archaeology and so much uh, interpretation that are imposed by uh, preconceptions and some other understandings that you really have to think carefully about everything you think you know. I'm not saying about, even about things uh, that you hear from uh, other colleagues, but just with yourself. You need to question what you think you know. And that goes back to the uh, story about the Edomites in Genesis 36, when we hear about the different cities, but it's not cities, it's Arim. It can be encampments, it can be the the residential place of the nomadic Edomite king. And uh, and it it actually, as I said, fits perfectly well to the archeological picture of a nomadic kingdom in the early Iron Age, actually, as early as the 11th century, uh, I would say, together with the description about kings in the land in, in, in the land of Edom before kings were uh, in the land of Israel. I'm not saying that we have here any bulletproof uh, evidence for the historicity of the text. What I what I say, and I we say it everywhere uh, again and again, is that the archaeology cannot be used to negate the historicity of the text. And in biblical archaeology, uh, there is a lot of circular reasonings here. Because one of the, the main reason why Genesis 36 is considered to be a late chapter from the Persian period or the late Iron Age, if you read the the actual uh, scholarly work of these biblical scholars and biblical archaeologists it is based primarily on archaeology so they say there are no towns in the region uh, there are no cities so this is why we have to place it much later but this cannot be the case any longer and now we have uh, we have to go back to the text and ask and ask ourselves questions related to uh, you know biblical criticism the language, everything you know pretty well. But in the case of the story of the early Edomites, the archaeology cannot be used to negate the historicity of the text. It fits perfectly well. And I think your next question will be, Connection to Jerusalem, and if this are King Solomon's mind's
0: Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna get there. I was gonna use a little segue to a previous episode we also did with Eric Klein, where you know he's worked at Megiddo, and uh, I remember visiting there at one point in time, and you know told this story in the in the podcast that on one they had this big cardboard sign, on one side it said Solomon's Palace, referring to a structure on the northern side of of the site of Megiddo and on the other side is at Ahab's palace. And it comes down to, you know, number one, how you're interpreting the archeology, span but then, you know, it led us into this discussion of, well, you know, he gets often, or he gets asked oftentimes, do we have any direct evidence of Solomon? And he says, well, no, not yet. And this is the thing that, you know, there, there, we don't have smoking guns. We don't have a closed case. We're always learning new things and we can't disallow something because of some preconceived notion. And so, you know, we're dealing with a in many regards needles in the haystack of the ancient world and trying to piece together what we know. And maybe one of these is this whole Solomon's mine. What do you think? Was that a pretty good transition? I thought I did that pretty well. I don't know. What do you Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll, so Eris, tell us a bit about Solomon's mines.
3: <laughs> okay. So um, we have, uh, we have mines in, in the South, in this Edomite territory, which were, uh, uh you know, the most intense copper producer of the time, anywhere from Anatolia, Turkey, to Egypt, to a- anywhere. And uh, we, we worked there for many years. So we know that it's quantities, it's, it is vast quantities that are not used only for the local Edomites or the local kingdoms nearby. It had to be much beyond that. And recently there is more and more evidence uh, for the markets of this copper, including uh, our study that was published a few months ago about uh, Egyptian bronze statues uh, from Tanis, They came, 21st dynasty, they came from uh, from Timna, they came Amazing. from Yaraba. Mm-hmm. And this is the time when we hear about the connection between Edom and mm-hmm. Egypt. If you remember the story of Hadad, the Edomite that fled after David's conquest, he fled to Egypt and got refuge there. So this is exactly the time. Uh, Egypt was the market, and uh, a German team found evidence that the copper in Greece, Olympia, Delphi, was made in the Araba and uh, Phoenicia, and more and more evidence that it was a major producer for the entire region. So of course, anyone that controlled the place, they controlled the Edomites or you know, subjugated the Edomites, could have had a lot of. Uh, Wealth based on this uh, very important industry. So I would say that we don't have any direct evidence for the control of Jerusalem in the 10th century of this region.
0: So, no graffiti is the saying, Solomon was here.
3: No graffiti, okay. unfortunately. <laughs> we dig every year again and again, <laughs> try to find it. Not yet. No, you yeah, go yeah, to a yeah. ride you find an inscription. That's right. You go here and you go after yourself, and you find, I should bring your... Solution.
0: Yeah, you bring him down to visit, you'll find And then we find right
3: the, the action. But uh, inscriptions are extremely rare, as you probably know. We shouldn't expect to find anything, uh, even if they were uh, writing around. like um, uh, you know, it's, We don't expect to find this. We have indirect evidence uh, for connection with the Mediterranean region, with the hill country, we have a lot of uh, grape. Uh, most of these grape pips were found in donkey dung. Like uh, we, it took us a while to understand what these grape uh, pips, grape, grape seeds are doing in, in the dung. And this is an amazing story in itself. We have like stables, uh, donkey stables from the time of Solomon and they are like fresh like a Bedouin camp was there 50 years ago. But we dated it directly. It still smells (laughs) with hydrocarbon. It's donkey poop from the days of King Solomon. And in this poop, we have grape seeds. And these grape seeds had to come from wineries. It's the waste of wineries in the hill country, um, which were considered to be, and still uh, is considered to be a fantastic uh, feed for livestock. We actually hear, like in a uh, Roman historian uh, about agriculture, that if you let it ferment a little bit, the animals work happily and even more energetically.
0: So Just like we see scholars. this connection.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we have uh, almonds, pomegranate, and many, many things that are not local, of course, to the Araba. Uh, but, you know, we don't have any... Very, uh, any specific sign or something like that. But I I say all the time that for the biblical author to describe the subjugation of the Edomites to Jerusalem, that we don't have to find a stone fortress in Timna with uh, pottery from Jerusalem. Not at all. It's enough that they had a tent on the way from the uh, Araba towards the, the Mediterranean Sea or somewhere else. And in this sense, uh, the, 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 the Israelites took tax, took tribute to Jerusalem every year. Mm-hmm. And there was some kind of pact. I believe that most of the time there was peace in the region. If there was a conflict and wars, the, nothing like that. Not This flourishing industry would not have happened. Mm-hmm. So most of the time, you should imagine peaceful relations and some tax from this industry, getting to Jerusalem. And this, of course, doesn't leave much behind. The interesting thing about the story of the Edomite subjugation and David's conquests in the land and Solomon's activity in Elat, in and an entire biblical description of this region is that we don't hear about King Solomon's mines. We don't hear about any Edomite copper. We don't hear about any, uh, you know, Mining activities, anything like that, and this is actually maybe you know if some of uh, some of you are familiar with the book, right, adventure book King Solomon's Mines and the movies, etc. So this is completely fictional. It is a, a fantastic book uh, about mines in South Africa about gold and diamonds, but it doesn't have uh, it has uh, very little to do with the biblical story itself. Uh, that said we still we hear about uh, copper at the times of Solomon in the construction of the of the first temple in Jerusalem there is huge con- quantities of copper covering the pillars covering the walls. Uh, we do hear about the craftsmen that were producing this uh, some of these materials in the Jordan Valley. they were uh, Phoenicians, uh, but we don't hear about the source of the copper, uh, and this is actually one of the reasons why scholars have difficulties to accept uh, any biblical connection between the mines that we we, we dig uh, and uh, you know the, the story in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, I I would say something about that that I published only recently, and I'm not a biblical scholar, so maybe I have. here kind of, a, it's, a, it's a new territory for me, uh, but if you read the description about the construction of the temple, in that specific case, the biblical author bothered to tell us where the raw materials came from, even if we don't know for sure where it is, but we do hear about Ophir, the gold of Ophir, probably somewhere in the south, south of the Red Sea, you know, uh, in, on the Red Sea, either in the... Uh, the Eastern desert of Egypt, or maybe in India even, there are some suggestions. We hear about Tarshish, maybe Tartasus, maybe in Spain, maybe in the area of uh, modern Greece. Um, we hear about Sida coming from the from Lebanon. So we have specific uh, affiliation of the raw materials, but there is a complete silence about the copper itself. Uh, and I think it is. it might be a deliberate case of omission because of what happened in the end of the Iron Age in the region Mm. and what happened between the Israelites and the Edomites Mm. at the time of the destruction of the first temple in Jerusalem. Most scholars agree that that the Edomites betrayed the, 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 the nation to the north and collaborated with the Babylonians in the destruction of the first temple. It is well we have evidence that the Edom did not collapse, did not was not destroyed in 586. It continued to uh, thrive a few decades later. And uh, from a brotherly nation, right? Esau was the brother of Jacob, from a brotherly nation, uh, uh, you know very good relationships, they became the most hated nation in the Israel in the, in the, in the scriptures. So we have the whole uh, prophecy of Obadiah against Edom. We have a lot of uh, hatred uh, uh, speeches from, from in other places in the Hebrew Bible. And uh, we, uh, we see it uh, all, over the, all over the text. So for me, uh, when I also take the mythology in a wider perspective, this, this raw material is unique. It is made out of uh, stone. It, this, it requires the help of the gods in order to produce it. It has some sacred quality to it. It's not just because that it was chosen to be the metal that covered the the, the, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. It was a religious. Uh, there was a religious aspect to this uh, to this material, to this raw material, and the the, 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 the editors could not associate this very uh, sacred raw material with the abhorred edomites it didn't make sense it was kind of a, a disrespectful for the description of the, the jewish temple in jerusalem so there might be here a a, a case of deliberate omission in the editorial process uh, this is an option that you know we can uh, I, I, think it's in a, so.
2: I think it's a great idea and i think to support your your idea, the fact that um, copper is such an important sacred object is the role of the Kenites and the role of the Midian. I mean, that, 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 that are part of, uh, we don't want to get into the whole Kenite hypothesis and things like that, but there's clearly um, holy connections, you know, with Jethro and the Kenites and things along those lines, which definitely had something to do with, with metallurgy. Their name, you know, Cain, means, uh, means uh, smith. And so it's a it's a very interesting connection. Um, I've done some some my own work on this on this very topic. And one of the fa- one of the most interesting things about the Book of Kings is essentially it's it's not like a side issue. Metal is like the <laughs> one of the main issues in the Book of Kings. Every king of Judah and reigning in Jerusalem is measured up against King Solomon and whether he not uh, whether or not he added gold or not to the kingdom. And in each one doesn't measure up, you know. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, and they all—they're all, you know, gauged according to how they did with with gold. And so with 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 Solomon, if we go back to um, the first eleven chapters of the Book of Kings, we have gold, silver, and copper. And one of the things that's so interesting is, you know, we have the exact count of gold. Silver was so much, we can't even really count it. With copper, we won't even bother to count it. It's just so much. And this is exactly uh, what we actually see in terms of the material. And in fact, there's been recent studies showing um, that we now have silver hoards which emerged early in the Phoenician um, movement across the Mediterranean from the uh, as early as the 10th century. We're talking about places like Tel Dor and others. And so again, it's not a smoking gun that this is Solomon that's doing it, but we have the cultural realities that are existing there. And so um, for me, I, I think one of the, the big parts is, is that with the copper industry it was so prevalent and so powerful and so useful and so available that you you know you're not necessarily going to value it as much as you would something like uh something like gold or silver just because you're you have so much access to it but the real reality of the economy is actually more important than gold because you use it in in uh all aspects of of, of life and so the other thing I wanted to say that's, that's, that's um, I, I think, really interesting is that you can also compare this to the, the temple of Haldea in the reign of Sargon II, when he goes to this temple and he takes the, um, the, the shields, the, the golden shields away from his, his temple. And then when he does, we actually have a counting of the same types of things you see in the Bible, the counting of the gold, the counting of the silver, and at the end they say, the copper's too much, we can't even count it. And it's the same uh, kind of thinking. And, and I would even say today, think of the Olympics, gold, silver, bronze. There's a hierarchy of, of these medals that you would, uh, that you would uh, have in the ancient world as well. Now, my last thing, because you, you, so many wonderful things to talk about. I know we don't have time to talk about them all. But the, 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 one of the things that's endlessly fascinating to me is the location of Edom. I think it changes all of the time in the Bible and then after the Bible. And it leads to even some strange traditions that we have coming down to us, such as the location of Kadesh Barnea being in Petra. That's only really because the Idumeans um, uh, we're, we're, were pushed out and the Nabataeans come in this area. But if you look at the earlier texts in the Bible, we have Mount Seir and the Edomites actually in what today is, is southern Israel. Now, that's not to say they weren't in Jordan, but the modern, uh, the modern boundary and even the topographic boundary of the Arava has caused us to create this kind of, there's Judah, and there's the Negev, and then there's the Edomites over in the east in the southern hill country of Jordan. But the facts uh, are, are completely different at different periods of time In uh, throughout the biblical period. We find Edomites uh, in the Negev highlands, we find them in the Arava, we find them in, in Jordan. And this whole thing plays a lot of a a role in how we understand such passages as first Kings and Genesis 36. And uh, you mentioned Genesis 36. I mean, it's a classic example. It says the Edomites who were there. And then there was Midianites in Moab that there, it's like you have three of these supposedly territorial entities, Midian, Moab, and Edom. And yet they're, they're, they're not, they're not held by any borders or anything. They're just mixed together in in, uh, in Transjordan. And so it's these types of insights and actually understanding the geography that can also help us um, understand what's going on in these texts. And as uh, Eris has indicated, the, the role of nomads in the way that they move and the, and the control that they have uh, can offer so many new insights uh, into these texts that have long been... Um, i wouldn 't say necessarily misunderstood, but they're but they 're kept in check by modern perceptions and so uh, what i 've been really enthralled by is the role that this has to play on historical geography even more so in some ways than what we see with with history and in understanding it from an archaeological perspective
0: great uh, yeah great it's great stuff chris um, we are we 're a bit out of time here, but I did want to give Eris uh, one chance to kind of offer up any final concluding thoughts, and then I have well, Chris and I maybe have a few rapid fire lightning questions that the audience is going to want to know the answers to. So, but we'll, we'll let you, we'll let you give us any concluding thoughts if, if there's anything else you want to say.
3: I think there are, there, there's a lot of material for thought uh, here and I still, you know, processing uh, the new understanding, the new data from the South. Uh, what we know about Edom is a nomadic kingdom. Uh, and there are two aspects to what we were doing in the south. One is the story of the Edomites, the copper production industry, King Solomon's mines, yes or no. This is all fascinating stuff. And we we learn more and more each season when we go to the field and we found other, uh, some more uh, evidence for this uh, period in this specific location. And there is uh, the bigger uh, picture here and it all, it's, it's related to all what we discussed about the nomads. And uh, I emphasize again that the story in the Bible is starting with nomads. Nomads are all over the place. And what I see, especially in the research of this specific period, the Iron 1, Iron 2A, the early days of the uh, Israelite kingdom, uh, I think that this methodological issue I encapsulated it with the term architectural bias, and probably you you will discuss with other scholars again and again the big debate about the chronology, the high and low chronology. It is all about. It wasn't so, you know, controversial or so you know interesting. This debate, if uh, if if people would accept the notion that even without monumental architecture, significant things happened in our region. Mm. And this is important because, uh, and I will say something that might surprise you, I think that there is good evidence for the low chronology, the one that leaves uh, the period of Solomon without huge structures and uh, the walls and the gates of Megiddo, Gezer, and Hatzor. We lose these gates, but I still believe that there is nothing to do, that this this localology has very little to do, at least, with uh, uh, completely negating the, the biblical story about uh, uh, the United Monarchy. If you read carefully, uh, David conquered a Canaanite city that was already there. It doesn't mean that the first thing he would like to do is extend it and, and build uh, stone monuments uh, and the same is with solomon most of his construction activities are with the, within like a already established canaanite cities and if we accept his nomadic background maybe the, the first thing he would do was would not be uh, to establish new gates the gates actually is not in the in the biblical description itself it just mm. the, the story says only that he constructed did some construction construction mm. work in these three cities So I think that uh, every time we get into this specific period, we should remember that nomads are in the background, that nomads were part of the picture uh, through a a longer time, and uh, to remember to to pay attention to this architectural bias and what exactly we are doing with the interpretation of the archeological remains, to remember that this is a complex task it, we cannot be decisive with our historical conclusions and this is actually the most important lesson from the south it's a lesson in modesty uh, and again all of what we know there is only by chance this is this is the lesson and uh, it applies also to other places where nomads uh, everybody agrees were part of the historical picture great well what great
0: words to to wrap up with here and i think you know, there are definitely points that, that we're going to continue to discuss on this podcast, and some we've touched on a little bit in previous episodes, but so many really significant important things to to keep talking about. And who knows, maybe if Ares has such a good time today, he'll want to come back on again in the future. So we'll have to convince him. But maybe we can do that by these last few questions. So Ares, you know, when you wake up, when you're on excavation, and you're watching the sunrise, you know, over Jordan, you're sitting there reading your copy of Solomon's Mines, uh, and... <laughs>
3: What do you drinking?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I've never read it myself. I know of it, but I'll have to, I'll have to read it. What yeah. what are you drinking while you're enjoying this this read in the morning before the excavation? Are you a coffee man? A tea man?
3: I uh, used to be a coffee man. Yeah. Black coffee. Okay. The best.
0: Okay. I, I think we're <laughs> I think we're largely you know, An agreement. The, the, the people we've surveyed have been largely coffee. We've only had one, maybe yeah, two people that are tea drinkers. look at the
3: table uh, in my office. It's full with cups, and I'm trying to <laughs> reduce the amount. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. working long hours. <laughs> yep we need. <laughs> we need, yes.
0: Yeah, Chris, did you want to fire off another rapid, rapid question for errors? I forget what else we generally ask. Because we already know his favorite book is King Solomon's Mines. King Solomon's <laughs>
3: Mines. Oh, uh, yeah, it's the Lord of the Rings.
0: Oh, ah, yeah. nice. Well, you are in good company here. We are. We are also fans here.
3: Yes. Nice. Yes. That's big, fantastic. big
2: coffee fans. Well, what what time do you guys normally get started uh, digging it? Because I know you guys also dig in the winter. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like digging in such a
3: hot, arid area? Yes, so this is because it's so hot and arid. We excavate only in the winter. One season when we found some human remains and our friend from the medical school here couldn't make it in any other time, we went there in July and we were very sorry about it. (laughs) But but usually we excavate in the winter during uh, January or February. We wake up very early. The first light, we are already in the field. It's a bit cold in the morning. Uh, but very fast, it becomes like a great weather. Um, and, uh, you, you know, Tina it's not one site. You, yeah. you, you need to remember, it's a it's a huge area with dozens of sites. So in order to understand what happened there through the different periods, even in the early Iron Age, we have to excavate several smelting camps. Each one of them represents a specific window in time. Like slave seal, where the purple garment came from, is... Specifically, late eleventh, tenth century, but we have also twelfth century, eleventh century, 9th century sites. So we have each season we exhibit a bit uh, in, in, in different locations, uh, and we usually uh, our seasons are quite short. It's only two to three weeks, and then most of the work is done in the labs, in the, lab. the different labs.
2: Yep, which involve right. lots of coffee drinking
3: yes great well eris thank
0: you so much for your time thanks for coming on here this has been just just a lot of fun chatting about these things and again topics that we're going to keep chatting about on the podcast here and uh, we'll be following your your continuing research and see what other new things that that you're able to to come up with and so again we just want to thank you for your time and OnScript listeners, this has been yet another episode of OnScript The Biblical World. We'll post some of Erez's resources up on the the website. So if you're interested in some of his articles and or even learning more about the Timna Project, uh, links will be there so that you can follow up with those things. So thank you, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show... Please show your support by giving us a
2: rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting auntscript.study/slash/donate. Until next time, keep digging.